Good morning. Thank you, Dan. Dr. Levin, good morning. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, December 7th, 2016. Next week, we will uh, round out the calendar year with uh, uh, an intriguing or provocative session. Uh, Matthew Oud and Frank McDougall from Governmental Affairs will join me as we <clears throat> try to learn a little bit or discuss a little bit the state of pediatric landscape post-election. But today, we have a very special occasion. We kick off with Grand Rounds, uh, kick off a very special day honoring the contributions and the careers of Drs. William Edward Edwards and Dr. George Little to the field of neonatology. And so, Hopefully that's one of many uh, rounds of applause over the course of the day. Those of you who can continue to join us, I think we will move to Auditorium G for the next part of the uh, occasion. Um, uh, as we celebrate the careers in neonatology, I'd be remiss without reminding us that uh, George served from 1979 to 1992 as the chair of the Department of Maternal and Child Health. And uh, Bill served for many years as vice chair of the Department of Pediatrics here. Um, and so both were sources of great wise counsel, I know, to numerous chairs, including myself, when I inherited the role. So, so I thank them. I also know, as I said last night, that we would not be able to be here celebrating their careers First of all, unless we weren't able to get to the point to let them retire, but also I knew that they wouldn't be comfortable letting us celebrate until they knew that uh, perinatology was in good hands. And um, certainly they had recruited uh, stellar folks in NITU and um, <clears throat> Carol Lynn and Tyler Hartman. But I think now that uh, Jim Gray has arrived most recently and Steve Ringer, they, they feel like the mantle can be passed. And so Steve is here now. Dr. Steven Ringer is our um, chief of neonatology and perinatology. He is associate professor of pediatrics at the Geisel School of Medicine. And he's in here just a little bit over a year at this point. And shortly after he arrived, I said, so Steve, when, it, when the time's right, we actually have to pull together somewhat of a, a festschrift for, for George or for Bill. And at some point, I think the conversation suggested, and I, I don't think Bill or George felt comfortable doing it alone. He said, let's do it for both of them. And, um, and, and quite easily, and not necessarily quickly, but quite well, Steve, pulled this whole shindig together. So, um, Dr. Ringer, take it away. Yes, exactly, exactly a year today, as a matter of fact. Although, what's with this white stuff? I thought that, you know, last year I was like, I was completely pleased and unimpressed by New Hampshire weather. Um, well, it's, it's a great uh, uh, pleasure to welcome all of you, and, and uh, uh, I just want to specifically thank Maggie Minnick and Vicki Flanagan and Debbie Oshak for really putting this thing together and doing all the heavy lifting around it. Um, we have a great day planned with uh, phenomenal speakers, each of whom uh, has had a powerful impact uh, on neonatology and the care of newborns across the world. Um, uh, and, uh, and I think you'll find the uh, program inspiring and 
really exciting. Uh, there, just uh, to remind you, we after this talk, we moved to Auditorium G. And uh, one of the things we're going to try to do with the program is that in between the larger talks, uh, members of our section have uh, graciously agreed to give little mini talks to uh, sort of whet your appetite about what's going on in neonatology. So uh, with all that said, it is an incredible pleasure to introduce uh, William Keenan, Bill Keenan, who is the professor of pediatrics at St. Louis University, has a career that it would take me well over an hour just to, <laughs> just to list. Um, uh, but uh, the, the, the thing you need to know about Bill is that he has had a, a profound impact on neonatal care in the United States and I would say every single corner of the world um, uh, in, uh, in resuscitation, uh, both in the United States and across the world, and in pretty much every other aspect of neonatal care. So, Bill, I'm sorry I don't do you justice, but I don't want to steal your time either. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> okay, well, thanks very much, Steve, and it is a great pleasure to be here. I feel so privileged to have a role in honoring George and Bill. Uh, who I've known both of them for many years and, uh, you know, such an incredible center of neonatal activity here at Dartmouth. And last night I, I, I couldn't restrain myself and talked a bit about the role that Dartmouth has had in the care of the newborn in the United States and around the world. And uh, so I'm I'm very impressed, and I certainly am pleased to be here. Um, the, my assignment is uh, the history of neonatal resuscitation, which I'm really pleased to talk about. It's, uh, I think it's, it's interesting. It, it uh, sort of tracks pediatrics and pediatric development, child health in, in so many ways. Um, and it is, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of a lesson, at least for me, and, uh, and how we might develop better care for children around the world. Um, and many of you know that globally, about 24% of all of the neonatal deaths um, um, are secondary to asphyxia or uh, problems right around the time of birth, which would be solved by efficient and effective resuscitation. So resuscitation is a, a pretty big piece of that whole picture. And um, I thought I would uh, look at this in, in a couple different ways, and starting with the ancient uh, case reports and going through some of the uh, professional and developmental issues, trying to bring us into the modern day. and. Um, I will touch on professional standards, which I think have really had a profound effect on, uh, on child health and what we've been able to do for children over the years. So uh, there's been documented 47 centuries of interest in neonatal resuscitation. And, and of course, uh, 47 centuries and 40 minutes, it might be a little bit of a task, but it's OK, I think. 
So um, th there are writings uh, that um, uh, look at neonatal resuscitation, look at uh, early neonatal care, recognizing the importance. Um, um, in ancient China, there were some uh, treatises um, about neonatal health, which included resuscitation. There's this story of uh, uh, Orissus and resuscitation and being put back together. Um, and of course, there's a there's a famous part of uh, of Kings where Elijah uh, resuscitates a young child and lies on the child, and probably as a description of mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. In in what uh, developed to, to be medicine, organized medicine, Serranus, uh, who was a, a Greek physician in, in Ephesus, uh, talked about the evaluation of the newborn and talked about tone, reflex, and breathing, which three or four elements of the APGAR score, and talked about how important that was in the evaluation of the of the newborn. Avicenna wrote this uh, canon of medicine that was used, uh, uh, you know, for about uh, 15 centuries, uh, actually, as the main text of, of uh, young physicians learning medicine and physicians in practice. So, in um, care of the newborn was was touched by Avicenna, which included. Uh, a lot of descriptions of early newborn care, what we call uh, essential newborn care. And um, it, you know, just lessons for all of us. Uh, there uh, was center of activity in Padua, um, Italy, and uh, Padua is, of uh, the Western schools is the oldest school of medicine in the world. And, um, and there was the description of, um, Mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. There was description of ventilation. A little bit of a forerunner of understanding the physiology of the lung. But uh, that's that's sort of ancient, and there are professional and scientific and clinical interests that developed around neonatal resuscitation that I think are worth mentioning. By um, the 1700s, uh, uh, Benjamin Pugh was. Um, uh, wrote this book on midwifery and re recommended and described effective mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation of the newborn and even described at that time um, a silver tube, but uh, a tube for endotracheal use. He wasn't the first one, but, you know, in terms of this scheme, uh, he, he drew some attention to the uh, use of endotracheal uh, to placement to help resuscitate the baby. Then there was this period of, of pretty rapid scientific change where um, uh, the principles of life were being examined and Boyle showed that uh, an animal mouse put in a vacuum that very rapidly died. And uh, that was the beginning of understanding of some of the respiratory physiology and uh, Priestley Isolated, which eventually, which was was oxygen, and uh, it was a a scientific interest, not a physiologic interest. Uh, Sierre named oxygen and did some further work, and uh, 
there's in French text, there's a description of giving oxygen to newborns as early as 1780. And then there was a sort of a parallel development about resuscitation, which uh, uh, the Royal Society, and there was more interest in drowning victims than in others, but um, um, the Royal Humane Society uh, uh, talked a, a bit about mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation for, for newborns, and um, it was, um, you know, interesting. It didn't change practice too much, but eventually the midwives started to pick this up and uh, probably led, actually, rather than picked it up. But, um, you know, so there was uh, so this interest in resuscitation of newborns, and Laplace uh, began to describe respiration as an oxidative process, using oxygen. And um, in the development of medicine, uh, James Blundell, who um, practiced in London, I think he was uh, uh, Scottish in origin, but um, he was the professor of obstetrics at Guy's Hospital. And um, in some of what he wrote, the stillborn, um, in the care of the stillborn, artificial re respiration should be diligently tried. An endotracheal tube and mouth-to-tube was described, and he described the insertion of an endotracheal tube just using your finger as the guide, which is... I mean, I was taught that a number of years ago. I'm not necessarily good at it, but, uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, there was a, an, an ancient, when I was young, there was an ancient obstetrician who showed me how to, how to do that. And, um, and then he also talked about the timing and that every moment is of the greatest importance. And, that, and I, I'm sort of paraphrasing him, but he described blundering in resuscitation equal to dying. And you should get on with it, you should do it right, and uh, you might be successful. And he described uh, 25 to 30 respirations per minute as the, as the ideal. And then he said, never hastily despair of a means of resuscitation. And, um, and yeah, I thought it was interesting, because that's kind of what we're struggling with right now. And, when do you despair? Not that not that I don't despair on occasions, but uh, it's uh, it, it's an interesting thought that he he was uh, teaching his students at the time. On the other hand, he also talked maybe that warm baths would be more effective, and that uh, spitting brandy into the esophagus would also be helpful. It was <laughs> it wasn't a straight line to progress, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. All right, let's see. I think, I, I think I'm lost here. Okay. So there were, not, not all of these are in exact order because there, there's a lot of blending of time periods and what, what, what was happening. But in the 1700s, midwives were using mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation and um, there wasn't much description of effectiveness or anything, but it was a, a, a something to do. Um, but there was a lot of interest in drowning victims, and uh, there in London there was this uh, establishment of an institution, it's a long title, but affording immediate relief to persons apparently dead from drowning. 
And, uh, you know, I thought it's, it's kind of an interesting organization. <laughs> and, uh, but it, 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 a little bit later in the 1700s, the Royal Humane Society actually started resuscitation education for the public. That if you're passing by and somebody is not breathing, you should resuscitate them. And again, I thought that was, that was a, a pretty interesting landmark here. But, but you know, these steps going forward and the steps uh, backwards um, that uh, William Hunter, who was a famous and obviously very accomplished person in those days, um, declared that mouth-to-mouth -mouth was a vulgar me method. And uh, he uh, used the bellows, and actually he, de he uh, designed it and sold it uh, uh, to uh, supply positive pressure respiration. And then the Humane Society backed off on their recommendations, and they started to recommend uh, the use of a bellows rather than a mouth-to-mouth -mouth method. Um, so uh, there were some uh, you know, leaders in, uh, in Paris and London, um, uh, Jossier and, and Blundell, who did um, endorse the use of mouth-to-mouth -mouth or mouth-to-endotracheal tube resuscitation and um, but then there was this description of the association between ventilatory support and pneumothorax and death and uh, so the enthusiasm both official and, and at the practice level really waned for the, the the use of positive pressure ventilation and you know it's very very similar to some of the discussions and and issues that we that we deal with in our hospitals, obviously. So, in the in this developmental period, I'm moving on in in time to a more modern period. And, and as I mentioned, you you get ahead and then you then you retreat, and you get ahead and you retreat. And I'll go over some of those that actually um, uh, there's a few of you in the audience here that uh, lived through some of some of these steps that were backward and forward. <laughs> well, I not only lived them, I practiced them. But <laughs> so just listing the, the, the methods that were used at this time in the 1850s all the way through the 1950s, I've sort of listed them here. And chest compressions by itself was, was listed. And um, it was mostly focused on the exchange of air, but that was the, the method used. And they, I, when I was in Boy Scout, there was this um, raising and lowering the arms method that was taught by the Red Cross. And, uh, uh, and then uh, one of the uh, toppings on that would be the assistant would squeeze the chest while you were doing this other on, the, on the raising and lowering the arms. Uh, Interesting, this gets mentioned a lot, the rhythmic traction on the tongue. And so you put a clamp on the tongue and you pull it back and forth. And it may have worked, I don't know. <laughs> Tickling, um, rectal dilatation got a lot of, lot of interest uh, for whatever, you know, corn cobs, raven beaks, uh, there are all kinds of things that were used to describe the the, the rectal dilatation and uh, brand, brandy is a favorite. And when I 
When I was uh, an intern, I guess, at uh, Cincinnati General Hospital, uh, the head nurse had a bottle of brandy in the cabinet that she said worked for apnea. And uh, I, I, I'm not sure whose apnea she was talking about. <laughs> but, uh, it, 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 you know, funny, funny kind of things. And tobacco smoke in the rectum, I don't really know the methodology. <laughs> but, but that's written about, at least. But usually there was some description of major, major stimulation that would resuscitate the newborn. And, um, uh, you know, the old Cary Grant movies with the baby hanging by the feet and being slapped on the bottom and things like that. And, um, the effectiveness is all, all of that is really quite questionable. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll go into that a little bit here. But... Um, and there was an interesting method, uh, the, Sh the Schultz method. Um, he's, the he's the guy who named the shiny Schultz, uh, you know, placenta presentation uh, with membranes come out first. That's supposed to be shiny Schultz. But th it was this uh, it designed to be alternately compressing and expanding the thorax. So you held the baby by the shoulders here. The baby would be facing you. And then you flung the baby up and flopped the baby on his own body. And then you flung him down, and then you flung him up, and then you flung him down again. And the description of meconium on the walls was pretty interesting. <laughs> but, uh, I, uh, and actually, this method lasts a long time. I listed here, 1871 is when he described it. And, and, and finally, it was, got debunked in 1927. So, there were many years and many babies that were treated in, in, this, in this way. And um, then my final note on this slide was that it's likely an eminence-based practice. He was a pretty famous guy, uh, and he described this, and he was really dedicated to it. And he, in, the last time he mentions it in his book is in 1927, and it was the, the popular text on obstetrics. So it's... Um, I don't know. Uh, it, it's, 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 it is a puzzle to me how this got to be so popular. And then this, this, uh, this guy who I did not know, obviously, but um, is Yandel um, Henderson, was a, a physiologist at Yale, wasn't a physician, but he was interested in resuscitation of many categories of people and, and instances. And... Um, he wrote in, uh, in this reference at the bottom here in JAMA in uh, 1928 that there's, in neonatal resuscitation, there's nothing that's no, so seriously, nearly the same as those in the dark ages. And he really condemned the current practices. He thought they were unphysiologic, not, not, not very helpful. He talked uh, uh, that the principle of neonatal resuscitation should be ventilation. Um, and he suggested that the fire department was far more competent than most obstetricians and pediatricians. And, and you should not call a doctor if the baby needed resuscitation. You should call the fire department. And, uh, you know, fire department, of course, was practiced in, in resuscitating people around fires, et cetera. And he did champion bag and mask support, and, but he also championed he, he, his... Um, from his uh, work on the stimulation of breathing, he thought CO2 was very essential, 
and that you really shouldn't give oxygen by itself. You should use a mix of oxygen and CO2. And, you know, I mean, from his work, that was a good perspective. It probably wasn't very helpful when um, some of these other descriptions we'll go over. Uh, it was like Eastman described uh, elevated CO2 and acidosis in the asphyxiated baby. So, but at the time, it wasn't, it wasn't a, an idea that was too off, but it did polarize opinions around uh, uh, the country and, and, and uh, Britain, U.S. and Britain. So, so it's really good, but not now all all good, and um, and then Joseph Lee Dealey, um, you um, so he was uh, a very prominent obstetrician. He appeared on Time magazine here, but he talked about neonatal resuscitation, maintaining body heat, clearing the airway, stimulating the baby, supplying air to the lungs, and. Uh, with it, he was in a big fight with Henderson, though, about endotracheal tube versus bag and mask, and so there was a there was a lot of back and forth about that. Um, you've all used his uh, suction apparatus, I think, which is a, a tube and a and a canister uh, setup, which he described, and you know, he's a pretty famous guy, uh, and. But but actually embroiled in an argument about resuscitation as well. So it wasn't as if uh, practice changed rapidly. There was there was controversy about this. But I didn't want to get into the professional standards um, evolution. I think um, so. In the United States, the Children's Bureau was established in, in 1912, and um, uh, Mr. Lathrop um, was. Uh, was the first director, pretty famous lady. Um, one of the things they did is they did they studied infant mortality around the United States and described a bunch of babies who died in the first minute. And um, you know we're talking about the lack of effective resuscitation. Um, uh, Hess and Lundin. Lundin is the founder of I think of um, neonatal nursing, and uh, and they they put together a the, the first premature nursery in the United States at uh, um, Michael Reese Hospital in Chicago. And they, they really described a lot of things about nutrition and keeping the baby warm, gent gentle handling, and a lot of things like that that we, that we practice right now. Evelyn Lundin uh, uh, described uh, gavage feedings, for instance, how to, how to do it and what the pitfalls were, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, uh, you know, Hess was, was really a pioneer in the United States. In 1930, the AP was founded, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and that was around a fight with JAMA, pediatricians versus JAMA, about uh, the, the well-being of children and, and the, the priority of children, children's issues in public policy. And then um, the care of the hospitalized Child was a publication, which uh, which was sort of a seminal publication. Um, uh, Virginia Apgar uh, described the, this, her scoring of babies, and she was an advocate of neonatal resuscitation. The Committee of the Fetus and Newborn uh, was was active in describing the standards for neonatal health, and uh, this uh, care of the hospitalized child. Uh, 
uh, evolved to the care of the of the hospitalized newborn baby. Um, then um, this uh, abbreviation TIOP uh, towards the improvement in the outcome of pregnancy was an initiative that uh, uh, March of Dimes was mainly responsible for. There was a lot of cooperation around the uh, around the country and and in, and represented in this room with the with George. Uh, about describing standards and a methodology to approach uh, regionalized perinatal care and, and raising the standard of care um, for, for newborns in, in the U.S. So those were sort of landmark steps that, um, that neonatal pediatrics in the U.S. took on. And uh, Lathrop studies with the infant death in the United States highlighted the consequences of or at least talked about uh, the, the consequences of poor neonatal resuscitation and increased death, disability. And I added a few, which are the emotional and financial burdens that uh, such a circumstance uh, evolves to and um, direct community costs and loss of productivity. So anyway, it was beginning to recognize this was a problem that required required action. Oops, I didn't go back here. Yeah. So now in this scheme, the way I've been looking at and describing it to you, there are pluses and minuses. You know, somebody understands something better and you may ch change practice and somebody describes something else and practice may fall back. And um, so one of the things that I want to talk about is intergastric oxygen that, again, some of you may have, uh, have um, experienced in, in your younger years of practice and um, there was a, um, a vigorous publication that uh, intragastric oxygen would be effective in, in improving oxygenation of the newborn. So just put a tube, ran oxygen into the gastrointestinal tract and that was supposed to be helpful. There was skepticism about that, but it was widely practiced and um, so that was, and um, we'll, we'll go into the back and forth here. Also, rocking beds were described at that time. There was an airlock, um, you know, uh, essentially a positive pressure, um, environmental positive pressure system that was described. Hyperbaric oxygen was, was described, um, and uh, there was a, a lot of energy in resuscitation by medication at that time. Um, so caffeine, coramine, there were a lot, of, a lot of those things used and they were stocked in resuscitation carts all over the U.S. for sure, but also included Britain, but I really don't know about the rest of the world. But when, uh, when I was in China, not too many years ago, but uh, they proudly showed off their hyperbaric chambers to, to show that they were, they were uh, doing their best as far as neonatal resuscitation was concerned. Uh, and uh, so this is a timeline on a couple of those. Gastric oxygen was first published in 1950, widely practiced, and it wasn't until uh, Virginia Apgar and co-workers uh, did, some, did some more scientific studies that it was, it was debunked by about 1963. And I, I still saw a gastric oxygen being used into the, into later in the 1960s. The Bloxham Airlock uh, was described in 1950, a lot of money, a lot of devices were purchased, 
Apgar and Kreisman. Uh, Kreisman is another famous guy in resuscitation and obstetrician, but uh, they described some counter information to that, and finally uh, it was put to put to rest a bit uh, in 1956, where um, a clinical study and um, the airlock did not effectively resuscitate babies. And I mentioned some of these other medications that really uh, didn't drift out of very, very popular use until the late 60s. Um, and, and actually, I, I saw these medicines being used into the 80s, but that's another, another issue. So uh, the, the development of press, uh, professional standards of prelude, the, the, there were physiologists now involved in studying this and trying to understand asphyxia, respiration, et cetera, and there were clinicians, and actually they got together finally. And there was this broad interest in the U.S. and England, and um, both at the uh, physiologists and clinicians in both countries were going back and forth, and there, there was a lot of uh, scientific exchange um, in uh, between all of those individuals. Um, uh, Great Britain described a, or founded a neonatal society first, and um, and and then the U.S. Um, did a similar um, establishment. Eastman, I mentioned earlier, he described the blood gases for uh, babies and asphyxia and some of the elements of that. Kreisman uh, um, uh, described a lot of things, but built a positive pressure apparatus that were used in in um, delivery rooms across the country. Uh, and on the on the pediatric side, uh, Flag, Strong, Day, Potter, Apgar, L. Stanley, James, James Cross, uh, all those people were prominent in in, in this uh, exchange of concerns and the development of professional standards. So the, there were a couple of big concerns. One is that, that there was a lack of consensus around resuscitation. So resuscitation came into the discussion pretty early here in this scientific exchange. And so both sides of the Atlantic, there were publications in Lancet, New England Journal, et cetera, et cetera, saying, you know, we need to get together somehow. There needs to be a better way to do this across uh, the um, the countries and uh, for the babies that were born, the neonatal societies were um, founded on both sides of the Atlantic. There were some landmark texts which included Clem Smith's um, Physiology of the Newborn, um, and he was the first uh, APGAR awardee, uh, 1975. So now this now we're from Clem Smith to to, to uh, George Little here. And, uh, and uh, I just think it's kind of interesting. And uh, and Alice uh, Schaefer wrote a book on the uh, disease in the newborn and coined the term neonatology. Um, so there there there's it's really a critical publication, but it had a had a big effect. And just to tell you about this, there was a resuscitation in the in the, of newborn infants that was published. The Medical Society of New York got together. There were 24 people on the committee who were authors of this paper, and then in, in included the people listed there, um, you know, huge names in pediatrics. Um, and then it was published uh, in uh, obstetrics and gynecology, and then they made a movie. 
about resuscitation. I don't know, how many have seen that movie? I, L. Stanley James is resuscitating babies, and he's doing meconium aspiration, he's doing all these things. It's a, it's a terrific movie. And, uh, <laughs> I, um, and, and, that, and then they, they turned this into a textbook on resuscitation newborn infants, and there were three editions of that. Um, but this, uh, this uh, movie by uh, uh, Dr. James in, in uh, at Columbia, I, I thought was fascinating. So just moving on to implementation, the community of fetus and newborn were part of this discussion. Can't we do better as, in, as, a, as a society, as a nation? And um, uh, two members of the committee there were Bill Tooley and, and Jim Sutherland, and um, they, um, they, they, they assigned one of their fellows to find out whether people would agree to do it one way, which was me. And I, so I called around the country, and everybody said, no, they, would, they do it the, the right way. They would not ascribe to a standard that wasn't their standard. They just, so um, they were, uh, uh, Dr. Tooley and Sutherland were a little bit dis disappointed about them, but they went to the Children's Bureau who then went to the NIH and said, well, let's, let's see if we can fund some initiative around this. Maybe we could come up with a better way of doing it. And this turned into this textbook, The Neonatal Resuscitation. So from Tuley and Sutherland, they, um, Bloom and Cropley got um, funded to put together uh, a textbook. And an interesting textbook with a lot of redundancies, but a way to move forward and to get a team and all those kinds of things. This, the, the NRP program that all of you probably have experienced at one point or another. And uh, George Peckham from um, Philadelphia lobbied and essentially got nowhere with it. Nobody, they, they, the same response, no, we do it the right way. There's no way. And, Part of the personalities, Ron Bloom was, um, I, I, he's a good friend, but he's also a very polarizing influence. And, and he, didn't, he didn't help because he told everybody how wrong they were, <laughs> fairly loudly. But, but anyway, that's another issue. And um, so uh, the perinatal section described the theoretical infrastructure that would involve the AAP and the AHA and try to move forward on an education program and there were eight regional train, training of trainer sessions beginning in 1987 in New Orleans. Um, we, uh, our big expense for that meeting, we had to have a copy machine in the back of the room because we were still writing the chapters as, as they were being presented. So that was, that was the major expense. Uh, and then there was a, a, a process of regional review and feedback and um, I, I was representing the, the NRP program at, by that time, and uh, I, was, I was called some interesting names, and uh, uh, I, don't think, I don't think my integrity was questioned as much as my wisdom. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so we t talked through a number of issues there, and um, uh, also at that time there was this basic physiology that was being described. Uh, you know, Barron and Barcroft and those people there was a, a next generation of physiologists, and um, so uh, um, Jeffrey Dawes described this, and um, uh, 
I'm, I'm wondering about the wisdom of showing this, but it, it showed um, if the baby was asphyxiated, this, these were baby monkeys from time zero, um, they went into apnea, but their heart rate fell fairly quickly. And if you resuscitated with, uh, say, positive pressure here, the heart rate would come back. So cardiac output was down, then cardiac output was up, and it was really around ventilation. So that was a, that was a basic, basic uh, issue. And further, if um, the, earlier, the earlier you started, the easier it was to get them resuscitated. So there's what to do and when to do it from this, from this uh, set of studies. And then they did other species besides monkeys and then eventually included uh, human, human babies and the same sort of responses. So this was the basic physiology that propelled these educational programs. And the NRP, seven editions so far, it was divided into lessons there are more than three million people trained, uh, and um, um, it describes team function. It gets a little bit into um, quality concept, but one of the things that the NRP described that really a great contribution from Dr. Bloom and, and Kathy Cropley was um, was the participatory learning, and the intention was to have no lectures, so we. So we started with no lectures, and then it turned into lectures for a while, and then the the uh, the uh, committee beat that back, and you know, just interesting human issues here. So at the NRP, it's not just physicians; the the lessons are separable. So a nurse that doesn't have responsibility, let's say, for positive pressure or ventilation, could take some of the lessons and be part of the team. So it would, it would uh, try to um, uh, acknowledge, but maybe bridge some of those divisions. Um, trainers and learner quality is incorporated, and new knowledge is incorporated. So there's, in this uh, theoretical piece that was put together some time ago, there's a, a committee that looks at evidence as it goes along and, and changes the, the um, recommendations. So uh, 130 countries, 24 languages. Um, so, uh, so a big step forward, I think, as far as uh, new newborn. And this is just a you know, global map and got a lot of lines drawn on it. But uh, 130 out of maybe 150 countries. It's a, it's a, lot, of, a lot of work and a lot of change that has happened in practice. Going back to the consequences of poor neonatal resuscitation, this is what um, China got sold on. They were 195,000 babies a year uh, with CP in China. They said, yeah, we'll, we'll invest in resuscitation. And um, so they have, and they, they've dropped the neonatal mortality by quite a bit. Um, and um, just to finish off the, in terms of this evolution, um, there are now... Uh, this this uh, Lancet series in uh, 2004 looked at neonatal mortality, described this this piece of of uh, asphyxia that contributed to that prematurity and infection were the other two uh, big elements of that, and very 
very important publication. And um, so it, now this has turned into something that you probably, this group's probably heard a lot about is the helping babies breathe HBB and using that same basic physiology from Dawes, you know, ventilation is the key and timing is the key that um, um, uh, some experiences in Zambia and China and, and the Latter-day Saints charities uh, who, are, who invested a lot in neonatal resuscitation. Um, uh, so HBB now is in, you know, for less developed countries and greater than more than 80 countries and has some good measured effects. Part of this is this triangle just to try to, so there are a lot of babies born, obviously 136 million babies born. And um, this slide is 10 years old, but uh, at that, that time there were 10 million babies that died. Um, but there were a bunch of babies who had required resuscitation. And, but m most of them could be resuscitated by the more simple means that are described in the Helping Babies Breathe project. And so skilled providers at every birth, there are challenges to that. I mean, that, the, the, what was written in the NRP and in HBB that there should be a skilled provider at every birth. That's what every baby deserves. And uh, challenges for this include the global and national budgets, uh, workforce, uh, do we have enough people taking care of uh, women and, and their babies, new, newly born babies? Uh, what's their performance? How do you train them? Uh, how do you sustain something if you make a change? How do you develop quality within that and also new knowledge? And um, But uh, on the optimistic note, uh, there now are partnerships across, across the world, really, looking at uh, newborn health. There's a, an initiative in the UN um, and WHO, uh, Every Woman, Every Child, which looks at some of these issues and tries to promote change on behalf of children. There's an Every Newborn Action Plan that can be implemented country by country, and a number of countries that have implemented that. Um, there's global health media to help with instruction. Um, there's a, a long piece that's been written and uh, about procuring um, commodities to, for the care of, of babies, and, uh, safe reprocessing, um, essential care for every baby, helping mothers survive, helping babies survive. And these curricula that George has had a lot to do with have, have grown up to try to package interventions on behalf of mothers and babies that would address many of the problems that we've been reviewing. And we've written, re recently written some guidelines about kangaroo mother care and, and newborn sepsis and quality improvement, uh, care of the preterm. So there's a lot of things that have happened that are, I think, very favorable. And that's sort of where I'd like to finish on, on the up note. Uh, but this formula for survival always interests me, where you develop understanding, medical science, and you develop some way to educate people, get people's practice up to a, up to a standard. But uh, you still have local Im implementation to take care of. And unless you do all three, um, you really won't get your effect. You won't, you, know, you could have a great understanding. And if you didn't 
educate people or didn't implement, you still wouldn't affect the health of any baby. So this, um, the medical science is ongoing. Uh, the educational efficiency we're still working on. And um, the local implementation, or the, we've done three or four studies now about local implementation. And uh, we don't have much results, but we've got, it, we've got studies. But um, so in Ethiopia and Nigeria, again, George is uh, the leader in Nigeria and, um, and uh, India, uh, trying to deal with this problem of local implementation. How do you do this? How do you get education? How do you change practice? How do you sustain it? How do you get quality? All those kinds of issues. So anyway, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> A comedian part of you. <laughs> Bill's a great guy, and I, I just want to make one comment uh, before I uh, uh, ask you a question. Uh, we've got some people here today that please buttonhole in the corner uh, and other places. Uh, Bill, Bill, as you can tell, is not a shrinking violet, uh, but he's got a perspective that I think is the best perspective of this particular subject and where we've been and where we're going. Uh, that is uh, is unique. Uh, if you heard it today, and, uh, and he's here, and uh, we've got other speakers today who have perspectives on, on their own. Uh, so please, uh, uh, don't let them get away, uh, uh, and so forth. Steve and uh, Marilyn uh, Escobedo, who's here today, Steve uh, Ringer, who's uh, one of us now, uh, have been chairs of the, uh, recent chairs of the NRP committee, and uh, they really know what's going on in, in NRP. Bill, um, where's WHO in all this? Uh, put you on the spot a little bit, because you've, you've done a great job of showing how this came about, the science and, and all the rest of it. But uh, there's some other, uh, there are other professional associations, including the, the world's uh, professional association, if you will. Where, where, where are they in this? You spent a lot of time in Geneva. Bill, by the way, is the executive director of the International Pediatric Association. And he's uh, not single-handedly, but I think uh, largely responsible for a uh, change in direction and involvement of IPA. And uh, that wasn't mentioned, but I'll say uh, personally that uh, that's where he's been spending a lot of the last uh, few years. Anyway, WHO. Well, thanks, George. And uh, uh, it, one of the virtues of a friend is that uh, it tends to overlook your shortcomings and emphasize something else, which is good. <laughs> So uh, WHO has been through uh, a bit of an evolution on, on this particular subject. One, they, at, at one point they were thinking neonatal health is too tough and we'll, we'll just do um, essential uh, child health. And newborn, we can't really do too much about that. <laughs> then they started to incorporate some of the essential newborn care, keeping babies warm, trying to keep them from being infected, early nutrition, those three elements. And so they, they took some steps in that direction, but still were, were, it was felt that resuscitation was too difficult to tackle. And um, so there was a decision, uh, even at USAID, not to fund any resuscitation initiatives. Um, Helping babies breathe, the description of helping babies breathe has changed that a lot. Um, 
the USAID jumped in with both feet, and they spend more money globally than any other entity, uh, and so it's really important to have them. WHO has been a little bit slower and um, um, a little bit skeptical. Um, one of the things, we involved Laredal Company in some of this evolution of the HBB. This is, George is painfully aware of all this. And um, WHO came back and said, well, you know, you've got a commercial entity, you know, you're, you're not worthy. And, and, and of course, they'd taken uh, uh, about a billion dollars from Norbartas for some of their programs, but that's, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, we won't go into that too much. But anyway, so it's taken a while to work with uh, WHO leadership to put newborn health forward, which they, they have. They did finally endorse the, the um, um, uh, essential care for every newborn, and um, uh, they're I, reluctantly on board with uh, some of the resuscitation efforts, in part because of the demonstration projects in Tanzania, um, India, um, primarily, um, you know, that showed huge differences in uh, neonatal mortality, uh, like 47% drop in institutional mortality, but first day mortality in, in Tanzania. Um, and then uh, hopefully this recent um, uh, evaluation in China where uh, neonatal mortality has dropped by 50%, 30 to 15, 14 probably. Uh, and um, uh, this deaths per thousand babies born. And um, so I think they're in, the Chinese are attributing this to their initiation around the, uh, uh, the NRP program, the neonatal resuscitation program that they put into every uh, institution. And so I, I think there, there's going to be further change, but it's been a bit slow with WHO. And WHO has this role in, in other countries, not ours, obviously, uh, that they really set the standard and expectations for practice. And if they say give zinc, you give zinc. If they, you know, it's, it's that kind of dynamic between WHO and these developing countries. And often the country's budget is dependent on WHO approval. Um, and so it, there's, there's quite a bit of uh, money involved in, in some of these recommendations. <laughs> you know that we're the ones that get to ask the question. Of course, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, as you know, I'm, you guys are more involved globally. I'm always been more focused nationally and locally. And I wonder if you have some insights into the issue of how to disseminate practice change that's evidence-based. You didn't particularly go into sort of current controversies in the U.S. around meconium aspiration, for example. Uh, percent of oxygen for delivery. I dare say there are people who still have only 100% oxygen where babies are delivered or room air as choices. Um, there are people who are absolute died in the wool. I want my anesthesia bag, uh, despite perhaps um, pressure control and devices being superior. So do you have any insight or any optimism about how to accelerate um, 
constructive change in the U.S. with all these barriers of people adhering to their own way of doing things? Well, I, I am optimistic, but that may be a failing rather than a virtue. Um, the answer, the simple answer is no, I don't. Um, you know, I think a lot of us, each of us, look at the information and then and decide. If you don't look at the information, then it's then it's a little more difficult to change. Part of it is about leadership, though, and um, um, patient, consistent, um, helpful. So, you know, like in Southern Illinois and Southern Missouri, where I work, um, it's taken a while, but most people are switched over to all of the things that you're talking about. But, you know, it didn't happen right away, and being, being patient and relatively persistent, um, um, and part of the climate of the United States is more powerful than elsewhere in the, in, you know, the medical legal climate. People don't want to do something that's out of the mainstream or else they feel vulnerable in, as an individual. So there's all of those dynamics. But uh, well, uh, I mean, actually, that's a, that I do believe that. It, it, it does influence our practice. Yeah. Well, those are the two appropriate questions for this session of the keynote. So I thank Dr. Keenan. I invite those who can to join us up here in the auditorium. Those who can't, 3 o'clock this afternoon in Fuller, there will be a social gathering. So any and all who weren't here, are here, or even weren't here, spread the word. Give your wishes to George and Bill. Thank you much.